at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. This is no happy week. All there is is pain and suffering. This is true. Uh, we will not be talking about the Mets in any way, shape, or form other than this mention that we won't be talking about them because life is awful, baseball is awful, and the San Francisco Giants can die in a fire. At least we didn't lose to the Cardinals, and we move on. You know what? I feel like I'd rather lose to the Cardinals. Oh, I don't know. The Cardinals are pretty miserable. No, I know I you live in California. You have more exposure to Giants dumb than I do. Well, yeah, but I mean, in general, like, people know at this point how repulsive Cardinals fans are. Like, if people spent more time with Giants fans, they'd realize that they're pretty much everything you hate about Cardinals fans, plus everything you hate about Red Sox fans, plus everything you hate about Patriots fans, plus everything you hate about the worst part of Florida State's fandom, the worst part of Ohio State's fandom, and, like, Notre Dame fans. Sounds like a, a fun mix. Yeah, they are. Uh, they, they are a joy to be around. But anyway, moving on. Um, Syracuse. Syracuse football plays game this week. Uh, they'll be facing Wake Forest. But for now, we can talk a little bit about what happened last week. Um, Dan, things were always close, but never close enough to give us hope. At least that was kind of my read on the situation after. Probably the first five minutes, you knew that no matter what happened, um, SU's secondary was a sham. I don't really understand why, um, if you're Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, you didn't just bludgeon the hell out of, out of the secondary the entire game. Because, I mean, those passers were there pretty much all afternoon if Notre Dame wanted them, but they didn't. They still won 50-33. to 33. Um, I thought SU looked better than that score might indicate on offense, but on defense, obviously worse. Uh, your at least initial takes now that you've had about four or five days to to digest the results and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the issues that we have long thought about this Syracuse defense kind of came to a head. Um, And for all of Notre Dame's problems this year, um, playmakers on offense is not one of them. Uh, Obviously, everyone became very well acquainted with Equinemius St. Brown, who is uh, one of the, the more impressive, like, big targets uh, in college football. Um, and he just absolutely shredded us. Uh, you had this Kevin Steverson uh, home run touchdown. Uh, Torrey Hunter, like, they, they have a lot of weapons on offense. Um, offense in general is not their issue, even though it's it's been spotty at times. Uh, but Syracuse's defense just isn't nearly where it needs to be to slow down an attack like that. And the offense isn't where it needs to be to win a shootout with uh, a team that has guys like Deshaun Kaiser and uh, St. Brown and and Josh Adams, who, you know, have a a nice game. Dexter Williams obviously cut us up a little bit. Um, Yeah, so I I don't think any of it's – I think the manner in which they stored and, like, those one-play drives and stuff, it might be a little bit shocking. But 
Um, I think that was mostly balanced out by, like, you know, Syracuse actually made some nice stops, and, and the red zone defense is, for whatever reason, like, kind of a bright spot, strangely. Um, so I, I think it, it ended up being about what we thought, maybe a little higher scoring in Notre Dame's end, but not much. I think we were all predicting pro- kind of, like, mid to high 40s for them. Um, so, yeah, uh, nothing nothing too crazy except for, like, the manner in which, like, points were traded off, uh, like, like wildfire in that first, like, five minutes. Um but overall, I think the, the, the numbers kind of bear out uh, relatively close to expectation. Yeah, I mean, I, I know everyone was kind of... I feel like everyone was a little under under 20-point, um, you know, range in, in this one. I mean, I had... I think I had SU was my, like, 11. Um, everyone had kind of varied. I, I, I don't really think 17 is that far off. I think a lot of folks who were... I mean, even myself, I was definitely found myself much more down about the result immediately afterward than I did... A few hours afterward and a few days afterward, as I continued to kind of look back on it, and then I rewatched the game and all that on Monday night, um, things definitely didn't seem as bad or as dire as maybe the initial score in the box score looked. Um, there were a few disconcerting things. I, mean, I don't think we need to talk about the defense much anymore. I will say um, the red zone defense is encouraging. It's obviously mostly a result of you know shortening the field so that there isn't you know a fifty yard kind of swap the land in, in front of them after they get past SU safeties. Um, I could take as many of these, uh, you know, kind of goal line stands as they can uh, they can give us. But obviously, if you're going to be letting up 72-yard touchdowns or so, um, it's going to be hard to have too many of those. Um, but on the offensive side, I think, you know, th- there were still some issues. I think Dungy um, was definitely under pressure a lot in the, in the second half and against a young offensive line. That's tough, and and they really, you know, Notre Dame really wasn't blitzing much. They were dropping, you know, seven or eight into coverage, um, and then just creating coverage sacks with with, with three and four man fronts. Um, you know, trying to pursue Dungy, it was a little bit easier in that second half as they kind of got a read for what him and the offense were doing. Um, Thirty one to fifty one is not really anything to like feel bad about, but at the same time, uh, when you look at the drops, uh, there was about five of those. There were another two or three overthrows. Um, you know, Dungy could have easily been, you know, over 70%. Um, can't be understated, uh, at least in, in my book, how much he's improved um, in, in the short amount of time in this offense. And I know you and I have talked about it before. Like, Dungy, Dungy's a really smart guy, and, like, I don't think that should be lost on anyone, how he's changed his running style. Yes, he still has some issues when it comes to taking risks, but I think he does make adjustments on the fly, um, and he does... He does learn from mistakes, even if it takes a week to do so. Um, so he might harp on the same mistake over and over in one game, but then you know, after a week of film review and talking to coaches and things like that, you definitely see a different player. Um, you're seeing him go over the middle more. You're seeing him avoid you know, dangerous hits, going out of bounds more, making the smart play to, to throw it out, out of bounds uh, when he's under pressure. So yeah, I, I, I think at least starting this conversation about the offense and, and what it could do, I think we should start discussing first what it can do and what it has done, and that's largely because of the adjustments that Dungy has made. Yeah, and I mean, I think you can see it even in a game where he had 17 carries, um, you know, with kind of mixed results, but stored three times, which is great, uh, because that's helped solve some of the red zone offensive issues that we've had. Uh, when you have a dual threat guy or, and a guy who can effectively run the read option, I mean, that's a pretty dangerous weapon down by the goal line. Um, but he, I mean, even just like taking blows, obviously he took the one, uh, which nothing he could really do about the one he did take. It, it was a late hit. It was flagged. Um, 
but he's being much safer uh, with not uh, not letting himself get absolutely walloped like we saw a little bit earlier this year and then obviously so many times last year. So um, uh, it's hard to really complain when you have a guy who had like, what, 410 yards of total offense and five touchdowns. Like That's a pretty decent day. Um, and I thought it was probably one of his, uh, his better overall throwing performances where he's been kind of mixed at points um, in previous weeks, the win over UConn and the loss to... Uh, South Florida. I thought this was a pretty a pretty nice performance overall by him, um, and he didn't even have like Etatawa going too crazy. Obviously, he had a nice game too, but it wasn't like he was just like overwhelming. Um, it was a nice a nice uh, performance by a couple guys. Um, I, I was actually really encouraged by uh, Steve Ishmael uh, got into the offense more so than he has in, uh, in the last couple weeks. Um, nothing huge, but he was uh, getting open, and, and hopefully that's a continued shift in terms of uh, balancing out this offense a little bit. And Dungey overthrew him on that one ball. That would have been a good, what, 55-yarder or so? Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the second straight week. That, you know, Ishmael dropped one against UConn in the end zone. Um, and then he was overthrown, you know, wide open down the field in this one. Um, you know, Ishmael's saying to media that, you know, he's fine to wait his turn. I, I think that's dead on. He's always been a pretty positive guy um, since he joined the team. And I think that, you know, he understands now, like, you already saw it in this game, like, when Notre Dame adjusted and, you know, Edatawo didn't get a target in the first drive uh, because they were moving the ball well, moving it around to other folks. Um, he didn't really get many targets in the third quarter either. Um, but in the second and the fourth, you, you saw a lot of him um, kind of at, at two different junctures where the game seemed to be separating a little bit and, uh, and Syracuse, I mean, Notre Dame's corner stopped pressing. That's when you saw Edatawo really go to work. Um, and the, the fact that you can call a, a seven catch, 134 yard effort, uh, pedestrian is a testament to how well he's done so far. Um, and in general, you know, it's, it, it's crazy. I think still, I mean, we're, we're five games into this, this new system at this point, but it is crazy to, to think of, you know, that performance is a down game for anybody in, in an orange uniform. Yeah. I mean, he's just been like so prolific, um, I mean, the fact that this would be what his 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 maybe his worst game. I guess the South Florida game he didn't store, but like when you have a guy who can go out there and you know he's only did a hundred yards and probably find the end zone like every week. That's I mean, anyone who plays fantasy football knows that that's kind of like invaluable. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I mean, nothing he can nothing he's done can really be understated. He's been one of the best receivers in college football, um, pretty pretty plainly, and uh, it doesn't look like he's really going to slow down. Aside from, you know, maybe facing more double teams, uh, which I still think will come. Uh, Notre Dame did a little more of it than some other teams have. Um, but that's why it's important that Ishmael and Phillips and, and the rest of the team gets uh, kind of uh, brought in along here. Um, although if, if people want to keep on leaving him uh, in single coverage, that's fine. Uh, go to what works. No yeah. reason to overthink the offense. <laughs> No, and, uh, you know, there were a couple new wrinkles, I, I thought. I mean, that one Irv Phillips run um, inside the 30 was really nice. I hope we see more of that um, because, you know, it kind of gave hope to, to the uh, Irv Phillips should be a running back crowd like you and me, even if we're the only people left on that boat. Uh, that was literally my first thought when I saw it. I was like, oh, he's so good <laughs> running the ball. <laughs> I mean, it's also the, the you know, the, the unexpected uh, on a play like that where he's obviously taking folks by surprise. Um but yeah, Irv did such a great job running the ball. He he's so much better at at operating in a small amount of space than Strickland is. Strickland is is, is fantastic in the open field, and that's why I love him as a receiver. 
um, because I think that he, he does a really nice job with space. I feel like Phillips does a really nice job in close quarters, and that's why you see him doing so well with these short passes in the flat, that, that he's you know managing to catch in these bunch formations along with that Otawo. Um, one th- uh, another thing I did see, at least um, looking through the box score, um, and I noticed this in the play-calling breakdown too, was you know how they were really getting some more names involved and trying to cycle people in and out. Um, since Esteem you know, came back in to take care of punts, um, and he does a very good job with, you know, returning those. He was definitely a little more out of breath than normal um, at the beginning of drives, which then kind of started shuffling in some other guys um, at the slot position, specifically Sean Riley and Devin Butler, who uh, you know ended up with four catches combined for 50 yards, which is, I think is a pretty nice day for the two of them. Um, and I also felt that you know, using Dr. Strickland as a receiver, I felt like they didn't do a ton of that thus far, um, but using Strickland as a receiver, especially with they went five wide a bunch, um, and put him out in motion after calling out the uh, the scheme did did seem to to have an impact even if the game was a little too far gone at that point and I'd, I'd like to see maybe a little bit more of that going forward. Yeah, I, I especially agree with the Brizzly point. I mean, I just think he's such a weapon returning punts um, that I, I think that's worth holding him out on first or second down, putting in Butler, who I thought looked pretty decent for what he you know put out there, and, and Riley. Um, trade them, you know, I'm fine trading a couple plays at the beginning of a drive, especially when our drives tend, you know, we don't have a ton of three and outs um, for the impact that he puts on, on punt returners. But because as we, as we especially learned this weekend, uh, Syracuse is not in a position where it, it can really, no pun intended, punt on special teams um, at, at any point of the game. Um, so when you have like an elite level uh, person on one of those groups, like just use them. Uh, I, I think. And, and I don't really think Brisley's been utilizing the offense as much as, as a lot of us probably thought or hoped. So um, if, if that's a trade you're going to make where he's, you know, missing out a couple plays where he's not really being thrown the ball. And it's funny because I say that and he has 18 catches, which uh, is more than he had last year uh, total <laughs> and more than he had in 2014, fewer than he had in 2013. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to miss a couple plays on offense, I think the potential for a, a game-changing punt return, and he had a couple that – uh, if the game wasn't as out of hand, like could have been game changing plays or, or you know similar plays to what he had in that Minnesota Bowl game, um, I just think that's a wor- that's a worthy trade. Yeah, and I mean when you consider how bad things are on special teams right now, the fact that we have one guy you can trust with the ball in his hands on that entire unit, um, just just give him the damn ball. I think it's insane that there was any sort of shift away from him, who was an all you know an all conference contender, um, you know at the punt return spot last year. The fact that he was ever shifted off. I understand why, but I, I think that the, the positive result, especially given how terrible his defense is, when, when you can force a punt, uh, your ability to flip the field uh, is, is, is critical, especially with how this offense, too, has been able to, to bog down in the second and third quarters. I mean, um, I know you and I have talked about it. Like if you look at Bill Connolly's numbers, you know, SU's a top 25 offense in the first quarter, um, then they're a bottom 25 offense in the second and third quarter um, every game because, just because of how production seems to slow. Um, so yeah, any sort of advantage they can pick up there um, in terms of field position and in terms of getting closer to the, to the um, end zone, where they've actually they actually did pretty well. They did there were four or five from the red zone uh, this past week, um, which was the most trips they've had in any game this year. Um, and and on, on top of that, you know the, the fifth was really just a, a drop by or Phillips um, away from being uh, five for five. Um, so I think you know encouraging signs there said. The fact that we weren't settling for field goals in part by necessity, um, 
did help us out. I felt like there was better execution. The one thing, and I know I brought it up in Slack a little bit, and in the play calling article, um, Dan, do you think some of the play calls might be getting a little too predictable and the pattern's getting a little too uh, repetitive, at least looking week over week? It seems like there's a lot of similarities uh, to start games and a lot of similarities where the team just kind of hits a wall and drive three. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a pretty adept uh, observation by you. Um, as you noted in our in our Slack conversations, it's it seems like uh, the scripted plays early in the game, uh, which is this is all your observation. I'm just taking credit for it now. Um, <laughs> the scripted plays in the first like drive or two tend to have uh, tend to work a lot better than when you know the game gets going. And I'm not sure if some of that is uh, the fact that Syracuse is likely giving up points uh, on some of those drives going on, or um, it's just a matter of, of, you know, you can only strip plays for so long before you need to start to adjust to the uh, game situation. Um, but uh, it definitely does seem like it's, it's possible that that's where the, the, tra- uh, the change comes. And I, I wonder if, it, if it's the, uh, the lack of a running game uh, really catches up with the team um, going forward. Because, you know, at some point, corners adjust to, like, the tendencies of receivers and, and uh, the defense kind of learns to adjust to the pace of the game. And that's where having an effective running game where you can kind of uh, dictate that tempo a little more um, and effectively grind down a defense, even when you are playing a tempo, uh, might uh, help matters. And Syracuse just doesn't have that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you just had to look at the numbers and see what Dungy's putting up on the ground. Um, he's the only one moving the ball. These run pass options have their pluses and minuses. They're great when he's able to, to, to grab big gains. They're not when he isn't. Um, I know we talked about this a little bit too, and this is kind of, does the run pass option and, and having a lot of the, the playbook kind of up to Dungy, like once you get past those first few drives that are scripted, is that is that part of the cause of the drop-off? Is that... You know, kind of like Tim Lester did last year, you put a lot of faith in Dungy to make these decisions. He's a smart guy. He's going to make the decision. But after a while, you know, he can only go so far. He can only see so much from where he is versus, you know, I mean, plus Babers calls his own plays. Babers is calling his own plays from the sideline, not the box. He's not, I mean, yes, he has, you know, his guys up there kind of calling out what they see. But with a fast offense, you're only going to be able to relay so much information um, in a short amount of time. So I guess, like, are all, do you think all those factors... Uh, might be playing in as well. Dan, you're on mute. Sorry about that. My phone just like did not want to let me unmute. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like kept on hitting it, just didn't kept on flashing off. Um, yeah, no, I think those are all possible. It's tough to really know without like getting into like get it, basically getting into Dino Baver's head. Um, because like every, pretty much every other college football coach, he's not going to, uh, just give everything away, um, or give you that much detail. Uh, but I think those are all, all distinct possibilities. Um, and I'm interested to see, uh, what happens as we go along. Cause I think there's a chance that this actually gets better rather than worse because, uh, the offensive line health, like both health wise and in terms of playing a lot of guys who probably weren't expected to be big contributors this year. Uh, definitely is an issue. Um, so whether or not guys get healthy, or you have uh, an improvement in, improvement in terms of you know just the younger guys developing and getting brought along a little quicker than they would normally, um, I think there's a chance that this gets better. And also the fact that you know we we have uh, 
you know, some more manageable opponents coming forward. Obviously, you still have Clemson and Florida State, but you also have, like, this weekend, Wake Forest, which has done some nice things this year, but it's it's a, a pretty big drop-off in terms of talent from Notre Dame, at least. Um, I know Wake has a transitive property win over Notre Dame this year, but I don't <laughs> think that matters about much. And then, you know, at BC in a couple of weeks, uh, Virginia Tech is kind of an interesting game. I'm, I'm not sure uh, what to really make of the Hokies. Uh, uh, I don't think we'll... I, I think spread offense equals death this year. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to win it, but I think there's a chance that, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens with that. I mean, they, I guess they did, they snuck into the top 25 this week, so good for them. Um, but I, I'm more interested in, in, even though Notre Dame has struggled this year, um, I still think they're probably a top 20 talented team. Uh, and what they do well is really uh, not great for what Syracuse does poorly. Um, so I'm much more interested in seeing where this team measures up against Wake this weekend and BC and NC State and Pitt, um, rather than like the Notre Dames and the Clemsons and the the other teams that are throwing much better athletes out there. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, like we said from the beginning, you know, this is year one um, of a several year process. Um, so yeah, I, I think you know, going up against elite athletes in a similar system, like we saw at Louisville, like we saw at USF, uh, like we'll see with Clemson to a point. Uh, like we saw at Notre Dame to a point, uh, you know, they're, they're just not solid comparisons right now. You're not going to be able to out-scheme a much more talented team um, when they have a similar scheme to you, even if they're not playing at the exact same tempo. Um, and they just have better talent on defense. Uh, you, you look at a team that has similar talent across the board and doesn't play at the same pace, um, you know, whether it's, I mean, UConn has less talent, but a team like Wake, a team like, um, like you said, NC State, Boston College has a little less talent on their roster. I think Pitt might be a little bit higher up just because they have been recruiting at a top 35 or so level for a few years. Uh, especially since they joined the ACC, it seems like they've taken a little bit of a step forward. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, those three games, you know, again, the, the NC State, the Wake, and, and the BC game are going to be very indicative of, of what this team uh, is in year one. And I think if they can pull off two out of three of those, everyone should feel really, really good. Uh, about where we're headed next year. Um, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before, you know, this system sneaks up on someone it's not supposed to. And, and it could have been Notre Dame last week if a few other things fell the right way. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a close loss by any means. But, you know, if you look at some missed opportunities by the offense, some drops and things like that. Um, and then you mentioned the offensive line there. Um, Kevin had a great piece um, a couple days ago where he was talking about, you know, how it just seems like no one's talking enough about how how much these injuries have had an impact, you know, how much this this line kind of mismatch um, and, 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 you know, lack of, of game experience is really hurting SU. And, and like you said, the running game is just, um, it's just bad. And it's, it's bad because there's a, we don't have a power back necessarily. And I feel like that's what you need to really get this, uh, this system going. And maybe it's Fredericks if he ever gets out of the doghouse. Um, but you, you look at that, you look at the lack of the running game. I mean, this is a run-first offense. I know everyone was expecting 40, 50 passes a game and we're getting it, but um, those 40, 50 passes per game are a lot more effective if you have 30 to 40 runs per game or, or 40 to 50 runs per game. Um, you know, look at look at something like Baylor. I mean, what Baylor did against Iowa State isn't anything to brag about um, from a final score perspective, but um, Baylor still managed, um, you know, six, 469 yards on the ground, um, on 62 attempts, which is insane, but that's also the school of thought that uh, that Babers came from, and, and it's the, efforts like that are, are probably going to color his, 
you know, worldview a lot more than than what you see at, at Texas Tech and, and the uh, the kind of pirate leech air raid uh, style of, uh, of spread. Yeah, and even Leach has incorporated a little more rushing in his in his offense the last couple of years. I, I think unless you have a uh, unless you just have a, a ridiculous set of receivers and uh, a elite quarterback, like you need to be run, able to run the ball a little bit. Um, and I know we talked about it last week. Some of these uh, these screen passes, which uh, were very mixed this past weekend, especially the the tunnel screens that they tried, which seemed like kind of a new wrinkle. Um, and a not good one. Not not a great wrinkle. Uh, oh, t- t- the kind of wrinkle you get dreamed for. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that can be an extension of it. Uh, but overall, like you said, I mean, go back, go look at Baylor last year. I, it, by the way, it just kills me every time that we have to bring up Baylor oh. as the team for frame of reference. Um, we, yeah, uh, please but lose, obviously, guys. please lose. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I mean, look look at what they did last year. They they lost all their quarterbacks, and they turned into a, uh, a spread option team that only ran the ball. So um, I think there's like kind of a a misnomer that that's a very like all passing all day offense. And at times it did became more of that because that was something that Bryce Petty was a little more uh, adept at, even though he was also athletic. Um, but they they really kind of played to the strength of their players. And right now the strength of Syracuse's players is the uh, almost air raid level of uh, passing breakdown, but I don't think that that is ideal for what this offense tries to be. I think it is a very balanced attack when utilized at in full at full go. And I think Colin Byrne, I, I'm pretty sure it was him that said that this week. He said, you know, Dino Bayers was a running back. He wants to run the ball. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've we've tried to establish a run every game. It's just not effective. And you eventually you need to move the ball and. Babers, uh, for you know, he's going to do the things that is are most effective in that game. Um, for the most part, that's his that's his strategy. Obviously, we we have uh, some questions about his decisions to punt in this Notre Dame game, oh, um, which he deflected uh, in a very coachy way. Which you know, we, we we can hope we found a unicorn, but you know, he is still a football coach, so he's going to do the things that football coaches do. Um, but overall, I, I think in an ideal world, when we move forward and get some linemen. In that are both healthy and, and mesh as a unit um, and, and learn how to play in this style because it's probably as big an adjustment for them as anyone coming from a very, very slow plotting offense. Um, I think we'll start to see a little bit more uh, of what this should look like, and, and hopefully that's later in the year. Um, obviously, I'm not expecting everyone to, you know, this thing to start clutching uh, by week 10 uh, at full go, but I think we'll have a better idea of what the ideal Syracuse offense looks like, whether it's because linemen are healthy or because the young guys are, are coming along at the pace that you'd expect when they've been thrust into uh, starting roles. Too, too true. Uh, before halftime, I do want to touch on a little bit of that fourth down stuff. Uh, that's really starting to kill me. Uh, last two games in particular, um, felt like we, we really kind of seeded a lot of our opportunities um, to, to change the course of the game, to flip the field a little bit. Especially with how I mean, the punting game is, is not the punting game hasn't fallen off necessarily as much as, as people would think. Um, a couple shanks by Hoffrichter and everyone's losing their minds. Uh, when I wrote up stuff on Monday about the, the special teams play, um, the, the big difference between Hoffrichter and Riley Dixon, other than trick plays working well, um, is that Dixon was able to pin uh, teams quite a bit. Um, you know, within within the, the 20 or even the 10. Um, Hoffrichter hasn't necessarily mastered that, but because of the pace of offense, um, if SU starts 
you know, closer to their own goal line, he also has less, he's also progressing less. Um, so, you know, Hoffrichter can, you know, pull off. I think he had one like 50 yard or so punt last week, but because it was coming from like the 10, you know, it didn't look like it went as far. Um, his averages are, are maybe a yard less than what Dixon's were last year. Uh, so I'm not necessarily panicking there, but, um, you know, Babers for a guy who, who talks a lot about being aggressive and going for it on fourth down, all this other stuff. Um, I think we're one, we've only had two attempts in the last two games on fourth, and both of them were in this past game, and there were three or four other times in this past game we could have done it. There was another two or three at least against UConn we could have. Um, I think that if I'm questioning anything this year, it's that decision um, that's really starting to derail what this offense is supposed to be about um, at, at certain junctures. Yeah, and I'm not going to like totally lose my mind because I, I do yeah. still think that even with, you know, we have this ideal world where, uh, you know, Babers went for every single fourth down, and obviously, you know, then when it doesn't work, uh, we have to keep our, you know, heads in terms of not, you know, thinking the wrong way and, and just trusting the process. But um, I think he's still way ahead of, of like 95% of other college coaches. Like, God, that the punting too often and relying too much on that unit – um, is is not a Babers problem. I mean, it, it's a problem with the vast majority. Um, I like I'm saying like over 95 percent of coaches at every level. So I, I think that Babers is definitely ahead of the of most of those guys. It's just not quite where uh, he seems to totally stick with his guns uh, every drive. And I'd like to see that. I, I just I would like to like. I mean, and it's early in his tenure, but I'd like to have a comfortability with the with the staff where i see a, a, a situation come up and i'm like yep this will be a, he'll go for this because it's you know babers and this is a thing he goes for pretty much every time and he doesn't worry too much about uh outside factors that might not play into the decision as much as uh like logically as much as you know other coaches who worry about a lot of other stuff that probably doesn't have the impact that they think it does Completely agree. Uh, I think that's a good place to stop for halftime. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, a limited amount. Uh, as I said last year, I've been on antibiotics, so I, I had to not go too crazy, and the beers I had were mostly unexciting. Um, but the on the flip side, I am going to this Wake Forest team that will hopefully not be in a hurricane uh, in Winston-Salem. I leave tomorrow, and I only have like one more day of these antibiotics, so okay. I'm looking to get into uh, some foothills, and uh, some other good stuff because North Carolina has wonderful beer. Uh, so I will report back with hopefully a pretty full uh, array of things next weekend and not the normal New York stuff. Do it. Go drink some wicked weed. Yes. I look forward to it. Yep. Pernicious uh, IPA is probably one of my favorite IPAs, and that's saying a lot considering how many I drink out here. So, yeah, if you can find that, would highly recommend. I don't think I've had that one, so I will be on the lookout for it. It is in bottles, so it's definitely around. Um, on my end, I had had a few things. I was just kind of out and about on Friday watching the Mets, and uh, there was a sports bar that happened to, for, I didn't even ask them to, they had the Mets on like three TVs and Stanford, Washington on the rest. Uh, so I was doing that. I drank some 24th Street Pale Ale from Strand Brewing, which is local. Uh, Grapefruit Broad Acres with Simcoe. Uh, just a beer from uh, Phantom Carriage, which is local over in Carson. 
I found Pizzaport, surprisingly. Um, I know I talked about Graveyards Pale Ale a couple weeks ago that I had down in uh, the Solano Beats location for Pizzaport. They actually ended up canning it, so I had a couple of those while I was uh, home brewing with the uh, beer that Dan has uh, aptly dubbed the Disloyal Pale Ale once, it, uh, once it's ready to taste. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you haven't... Uh, is that still still being worked on? Yeah, it's... Uh, we're probably... a probably two or three weeks out from like actual tasting but right now it's still kind of finalizing the, the fermentation part of things and then we'll uh we'll let it sit for a bit very nice so i will report back on that one once it's done um other things i had uh beechwood is their green shift double ipa which was uh just as excellent this year as it always was um and then uh the brewery with their uh Sans Pajai, I think that's how you pronounce it. There's too many Belgian names that they use. Um, but yeah, basically, it's a Belgian style creek. Uh, it's sour blonde in barrels with cherries. Uh, it's very, very good beer. Uh, very tart. Now, my first experience with it a few years back um, felt like it was going to take the uh, enamel right off my teeth, which was not a fun experience, and I had heartburn for days. Uh, this time, the last couple of years, actually, they've done a nicer job of balancing it. So I uh, I much much appreciate uh, that on their end. Anyway, moving on, Syracuse Wake Forest. Uh, Dan will be there. I will not this time around. Um, but yeah, Syracuse is the polar opposite of Wake in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, Wake is four and one. They. Uh, they pulled off a couple nice wins this year. Uh, they have seemingly looked better. Um, I think you know. They, I think they steadily improved week over week um, until we got to this past week's game against NC State when they looked pretty bad. Um, John Wolford will pr- almost definitely be starting um, on Saturday, which means we don't have to worry about as much of the dual threat of Kendall Hinton as we m- once would have. But Wolford can run himself and has run on us before. Um, we've actually, I mean... I feel like a lot of these defenders, even if the scheme isn't necessarily familiar, um, a lot of these defenders should at least have some recollection um, of what John Wolford does. Uh, Dan, other than the hoping for no hurricane force winds and rain, uh, what are you expecting down at uh, BB&T Field? Um, I'm not honestly all that sure. I haven't had a chance to watch Wake this year, uh, even in their... And I'm uh, fitting this in totally organically. Their exciting seven to three win over Tulane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly they're an improved team. Although I, I don't know that a win over Duke tells you a ton. I know Duke beat Notre Dame, but Duke's also looked pretty awful. I think a loss to Duke tells you a ton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, win over Indiana probably looks a, a little nicer and on the road. Um, but then they lost to NC State, and I I don't know what to make of NC State. Because NC State hasn't really played anyone because it's NC State and they never play anyone. Um, overall, I mean, I'm not I'm not really afraid of this passing attack, uh, especially. I, I I think I'd rather play Walford than Hinton for the reasons you've outlined. Um, I mean, he's under six yards in attempts. That's not very good. Um, I know he's had his moments, but uh, he just doesn't stare me. Uh, this offense overall, like, it's probably a little better than it has been. You still don't um, have the because... targets though. Like, they don't. There's. We, like they've had guys they can throw to in the past. That's not the case this year. Like Serene is probably the only guy that like I have any legitimate amount of concern for. Like in the past, we've actually seen like 
like guys like Michael Capanera, like actually like receivers, and, and those teams have proceeded to put up nothing against us without any real receivers or any guys that I would really bank on. I'm just not. I'm not really sure, even if Wolford is playing well, who he's going to be getting the ball to. Yeah, it's it. Like I just don't. I haven't seen enough from this Wake team. Nothing like totally stands out. Just even beating Indiana. I mean, Indiana's defense is is not good. Um, so it's not like putting 33 on them is like this huge, uh, you know, coming out party. Um, even if 33 points for Wake Forest has it tends to be a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'll be def- I think it'll probably be the closest game we've had since joining the ACC. Um, because Syracuse is, for whatever reason, just like really whooped up on Wake um, yeah. the last couple of years. Um, I, I, I don't know. I feel pretty confident about it. I think a lot of that is uh, on my part probably um, just you know having watched this game however many years in a row now and, and seeing uh, since that that game were the first game of the dome when Campanaro went out. Um, I think that was the last. Uh, team coached by Jim Drobe. Um, since then, I mean, the, the Tlawson era just has not been kind to, uh, or has just not been good for Wake in this series. Um, so I'm probably a little taller that, by that, but the numbers just don't look drastically different than what they did last year. The team has no explos- uh, explosiveness. Um, it limits it pretty well, which uh, is kind of similar to past teams, which had some, some nice, uh, some nice uh, defensive backs and, and some highly ranked players there. Um, it, it just seems like it, it's probably like a better, ver- a slightly better version of what Wake's been for a while here, and that doesn't really scare me. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, you know, I don't even have an issue with how they've scheduled here. Um, I don't think they really scheduled totally poorly, but they've scheduled wins, and 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 they've put themselves in a situation to be four and one right now. Um, that's smart on their part. It's not smart on ours that we didn't. Um, but. That is what it is. I mean, you're right. Wake doesn't necessarily look like they're, uh, you know, head and shoulders above what this team has been in the past. Um, and again, it was proven by them being beat by an NC State team, who I think their ceiling's probably around six and six or so. Uh, I mean, they lost to a mediocre-ish ECU team. Um, I didn't think they looked great against William and Mary, whoever else they played. Like. I'm never impressed by State, and I know that like that's one of like the long-standing biases on this podcast that like n- never be impressed by NC State uh, un- under any circumstances. But I, you know, I, I think that's a product of, of what they are under Dave Dorn, and we you know we can talk plenty more shit about NC State later on uh, when we face them. Uh, like you said, Wake them scoring 30 is a major accomplishment. Um, they have I don't think they've ever scored 30 on us actually um which uh even in that overtime game which which spells some some bad things for them uh i looking over more of like wolford statistics like he doesn't put the ball in the end zone he's throwing under 57 percent like you said you know less than six yards per attempt i mean this is it's the same thing you and I said before the UConn game, maybe even more so, to be honest, um, because I feel like, I mean, there's actually a running game here for once, but um, I feel like UConn was better at running the ball. Um, a team that runs at a pace like this and, and runs an offense like this where you're not explosive, you can't really, you can't make up ground in a hurry, um, it, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be more difficult, to be honest, as the year goes on, to beat Syracuse if if, if you find yourself down you know, 14, 21 points very quickly. 
Yeah, and Syracuse's tendency to jump on people um, while, you know, they did it to UConn and UConn clawed its way back and, and almost won the game. Well, we did nothing um, for like two and a half quarters. Right. Uh, you can't always bet on Syracuse just totally going in the tank. I don't think we have enough data yet to like say definitively that Syracuse will never be able to store in the, the middle quarters. Um, it, it seems that way now, but uh, I just I don't know that we can make that determination. Um, uh, you were also you were right. Wake has never scored 30 points in Syracuse. The two programs <laughs> played five times uh, since 06. Uh, the tie- closest they came was in the overtime game. They scored 29. Syracuse, which is uh, those of us listening to, or those of you listening to the podcast are, are acutely aware, not fielded a great offense in that time frame, mm-hmm. and has stored uh, an average of twenty three points, which is brought down by a thirteen and a ten. Um, Ooh, can I guess all the scores without looking? Yes, let's do this. This is great. All right, two thousand six. <laughs> two thousand six was twenty to ten. Yes, two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven was was it? That was a twenty to ten Wake Forest win. That was the only one in the series Correct. for Wake. Um, yes, so I, I have been either a student or a po- or a holder of a Syracuse degree for every one of these games. Um, I have been to four of these games. The only one I wasn't was <laughs> I was you know sixteen in high school at the O six team. Uh, was that thirty three twenty nine? No, thirty six twenty nine. Ah, I thought that. Two, um, the other game twenty thirteen was the Campanaro died game, yes. which was sad. We had thirteen nothing thirty seven. Yep. yep. And then last year's game was 31 to 10? 30 to 17. Oh. Pretty good, though. Pretty good effort. Did what I could. Actually, the fact, it's actually less surprising that I got the, the furthest one away, right? Yeah, so you nailed three. And then the other ones you were off by a total of three points in 2011 and a total of uh, eight points last year. Killing it. Just just really strong effort. <laughs> All right, so that's your that, that's your history of Wake. Um, I know I put this article up last year. I might actually repost it um, this year. My uh, my Syracuse and Wake make for strange bedfellows article that uh, that got some like weirdly positive perception from both sides of just like this odd link we have with one another and how we've knocked a uh, an important member of the Wake Forest offense out of every game we've played against one another. Yeah, I've kind of, uh, yeah, we, we have. Every single one. <laughs> it was, what, Walford a couple of years? The last time we were out, Wake, no, it was Going Walford. all the way to 06. Who was 06? Oh, it was, uh, yeah, well, that didn't really help. We set up, <laughs> yeah, we set up the Riley Skinner era. <laughs> um, and then it was Tabanaro in, in 2013. Who was in 2011? In 2011. The overtime game. In 2011. I know, I know. Knocked, no, we knocked it Price was someone. out. We knocked Price out in the 2011 Oh, game. right. And then, I think we knocked Wolford out of the last two games. Yeah, I think you're right. Because, like, I remember the last game at Wake where we briefly met at halftime. Um, Wake's offense was just the worst thing. <laughs> it was it was just by, like, like Syracuse was not a good offensive team. AJ and Long's looked, greatest hour. It was AJ Long. It was an AJ Long game. And it was, like, one of those things where Syracuse stored 30 points. So, we're like, oh, the offense looked pretty good. And you realize, I think, like, 14 of those points came directly from the defense or, like, the defense left the ball, like, the two. So, it wasn't like the offense was actually all that great. But uh, the defense had a really nice game. And uh, Wake's offense just, oh, just not good. I honestly, that makes me think about, like, the, the Syracuse quarterbacks I've seen live. And, like, the list makes me angry. 
because I've oh, seen, the, oh, the quarterbacks you'll know. No, because the last the last three games I've seen Zach Mahoney, AJ Long, and um, and Terrell Hunt in that order, going backwards. Um, Ryan Nassib. The only game I saw him start was his final game, and then I saw Greg Paulus a bunch. Um, I saw a lot of Andrew Robinson, a lot of Perry Patterson, um, and what's his name? Who was in there? Shit. Who started the Notre Dame game in oh, in Greg's second to last game? Oh, Tam Dantley. Yeah, there you are. So yeah, that's uh, that that's my roster of, of Syracuse quarterbacks, um, largely populated by, I'd say, ranking wise, Andrew Robinson most. Patterson, Paulus, Dantley, and then, yeah, I've yet to see Eric Dungy, and I'm probably not going. And who knows if I ever get to, uh, depending on what happens before the LSU game next year. I don't know that I've seen – let me look. I don't know that I've seen Dungy. I saw Mahoney last year for the LSU game. Um, was that the only game I went to last year? I don't think so. Yeah, I thought he went to a couple. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I went to a few. Um, last year was a – not the greatest year. Um, well, I've seen, I've seen, I think every, if I haven't, if I've seen Dungy, I've seen every Syracuse quarterback going back to Robinson. Um, That's pretty solid. So, well, is it? <laughs> uh, I mean, not really, <laughs> seen, but. <laughs> which would be Dantley, or it was, it was A-Rob, Dantley, um, and then Paulus Nassib, um, and then I guess you would, after Nassib, it would be Drew Allen. Oh, uh, Hunt. I never saw Allen. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> uh, Terrell Hunt, obviously. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and then uh, A.J. Long. Um, who else started that? Oh, uh, did I? Yeah, I definitely saw Austin Wilson start. You see Mitch Kimball? Uh, <laughs> no, I never saw Mitch Kimball. I did not see the Mitch Kimball game. He started, what, against Duke? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't, wasn't at that one. So I missed Mitch Kimball, uh, you know, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Was I at the Wake game last year? I think I was. That sounds right. Yeah, and I think Dungy started that. He had to. Yeah. Yeah, he did. That was uh, his first start. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have. I was definitely. Oh no, I wouldn't. Maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to see Dungy. I was really pissed, and I didn't get to see him last year. Instead, I saw Mahoney. I saw Mahoney against NC State. I saw AJ Long against Wake, and then I saw Terrell Hunt against Maryland. In that really, really, really boring um, game down in College Park, it was a really, really boring definitive win. It was which a definitive I will win, which is nice. It's me and my uh, buddies from college are down there, kind of laughing at like the five Maryland fans left in the building by like the third quarter, yelling "Where's our exit fee?" <laughs> which was, which was like that's such like a point in time of like the realignment jokes and where every conference pretended we all loved each other. Like, just because you were just holding on to each other, praying nobody else left for, like, a five-year stretch? Well, I, I, it was like that, but, like, I remember going to, the, like, the, the last basketball game at UConn before we left the Big East. It was like, you, they clearly don't want us to leave, but they're also going to taunt us into, like, not leave. I don't know what yeah. their strategy was. <laughs> it was like, how dare you leave this venerable conference that uh, doesn't make any money and clearly is holding you back as a athletic department? Why would you ever leave? Well, that was the and big now, difference between them and, and like, the ACC situation. Because, like, when Maryland was leaving, we're like, just get out because we want Louisville. Yeah, 
Like, we're like, you know, this t- it kind of sucks to, like, have someone leave on you, I guess. But, like, ACC, like, we were pretty sure that the ACC would be able to upgrade because Louisville was waiting in the wings because the Big 12 decided they didn't want them, which, looking back, looks funnier every day. Actually, that's a good segue for what we talk about after um, we make some predictions. I figure we go into a little bit of other college football after this. So, Dan... Given everything we've talked about with Wake or haven't talked about in some cases, um, what do you see happening in this one? Um, I'm going to say uh, this one shakes out kind of similarly to the last couple of games. I'll give Wake a little more credit on offense because their offense has been you know, somewhat better than it has been in the past, and our defense is a, a tire fire. Um, I'm going to give Syracuse a 33-30 to win at BB&T Field. Okay. And I will then, and if that happens, I will have never lost uh, to my brother in any, well, I can't say that. He has another semester, but uh, I will continue to not have lost a major sport to my brother in the Syracuse-Wake Forest-Lions family rivalry. I always wish I had one of those, and and I don't, because my sister went to U, my sister's finishing up at UMass, and there's no rivalry there. Um, Then my brother has gone to a marriage. they... (laughs) If there was, like, you probably wouldn't want to talk about it. Just yes. UMass has not been not been the kindest athletic department to Syracuse. Also fair. Uh, and then there's my brother who's gone to a myriad of other schools that we don't even need to address. Um, for me, I'm going with 31-27. Uh, this is going to look a lot like the UConn game in some ways. Um, I know when I was talking to the guys over at uh, Blogger So Dear, the uh, Wake Forest blog for SB Nation, they were saying that their corners are terrible. Um, and right away my mind went to UConn and how uh, Amba Etatawo completely abused Jamar Summers. Um, who was not supposed to be terrible. He was not supposed to be at all. But he, he <laughs> Except that, him. like, I've now watched him for two weeks in a row and it hasn't been good. <laughs> no, like, he's, he's, he's not good. I mean, granted, um, I'd say that SU's offense um, presents one challenge for him um, and, and Houston just being a much better team presents another, but just the same... I don't think you can really make a niche for yourself as someone who can defend receivers six feet or, or, or shorter. It doesn't sound like a niche that anyone really has much use for in college ranks or, or the pros. No, you, you need to kind of be able to defend uh, more than just Tavon Austin. Yeah, that's, that's not a great strategy guy. But knowing that, um, I see Syracuse being able to move the football, but I wouldn't say we see like a market improvement over... Anything we've seen in the past few weeks, um, maybe we get the running game going. I think it really depends on the weather, too. Um, I know some recent projections seem to suggest that Hurricane Matthew starts heading out to sea a little bit. Uh, so we'll see what happens, no pun intended. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I, I've got SU by, by a slim margin, but, uh, but one that is a win gets us to 3-3 three and three, uh, and gets us our first ACC victory of the year. Yeah, I mean, Wake does defend the run quite well. Um, luckily for Syracuse, it doesn't even try to run uh, when it's obvious it can't. So yeah. I think it'll, if in fact Wake has bad corners, uh, which I'm not, you know, looking at the number, I haven't watched Wake for more than like a, a brief moment in time this year. Um, it doesn't look like the numbers really bear that out, but like they've only played one like big time passing attack, and that's Indiana. And uh, I mean, they won it, but they, you know, they gave up 28 points and. I'm not sure exactly how uh, is Sudfeld still at Indiana. I'm pretty sure he is, right? That sounds right. Yeah, 
Uh, not sure like how Indiana looked in that game. So um, we'll see. I, I trust the blockers. So dear guys are, are not being a uh, toy when it comes to the cornerback play. No, I mean, granted, they're probably like even more negative about the team than we are. And not like in a, in, in, in a similarly like tongue in cheek way, not in like a F this team way. Like I think a lot, some other blogs might be, but for them, yeah, they're, they're pretty realistic, which, uh, which is why I, t- I took that piece of information to heart. Um, it's, it's not Sudfeld. It's Richard Lodero, which I forgot about. Sudfeld, I think, is in the NFL. Or he's oh. somewhere. He's, he, he, he still exists on this existential plane um, post his Indiana career. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as I mentioned before, um, you mentioned the Big 12, and I thought uh, we'd get a chuckle out of today's non-news. I know somebody started spreading some, uh, some nonsensical um, non-expansion news today. That, I uh, saw that. Yeah. That was uh, that was that was fun. That was like brought me back to like 2011. Yeah, the West Virginia bloggers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That uh, they were saying that the uh, Big 12 is willing to let Oklahoma walk because Nebraska was interested in coming back. Um, <laughs> that's that's stupid, and and no, it's not going to happen. Um, and then Frank the Tank was actually tweeting quite a bit about this. For those who remember, Frank. Uh, Kind of made his bones as one of the foremost experts on uh, expansion and realignment, taking a very logical and realistic view of, uh, of the schools out there and where they might end up. Uh, he, he's been right on a lot of different things, um, you know, many, many years before they happened. And I consider him one of the, uh, the experts there, especially knowing that he does have some ties within the industry um, that can give him hints about some of these things. Uh, one of the things he pointed out tonight, though, when he was, this is only like an hour ago, um, you know, where Dan and I are on pretty late uh, tonight. Is, oh my uh, God, it's one a.m. There you go. <laughs> For you, it's one a.m. We're, yes. we're still we're still cranking over here. Thanks, Mets. <laughs> Sorry, we're not supposed to start with the Mets. That's Moving true. on. But what he brought up was if 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 you you if Texas and Oklahoma refuse to extend the grant of rights with any team that's added, and as a result, you're going to not expand. Why on earth wouldn't you like the eight schools that aren't UT and, and OU have an invested interest to expand right now, get paid, and then even if UT and Oklahoma leave, most of you don't have another landing spot. So why wouldn't think, you combine for the eight schools? You have the majority if you eight just vote yes. You're you're probably you're right. I think when you have schools like Texas Tech and Oklahoma State who are tied to Texas and Oklahoma, or at least people tend to think they are in terms of like when, if the Pac-12 expands or the SEC expands or whomever, um, there's a possibility of those schools getting dragged along. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still only four, uh, so I'm not sure who else is is you know betting on themselves here. Um, but it's clear that even if even if the other schools uh, don't believe that about their their programs. The fact that there is a majority of schools, and I'm not sure what the voting necessity, you can correct me, like, is it just a, a simple majority in terms oh, of... Oh, no. It's 8 out of 10. So, yeah. So, the fact so that's that... that's the problem. Um, okay, so it could just be Texas and Oklahoma. Yeah, you could leave them on an island, because they're gonna, those two schools, if they have an opportunity, Texas and OU will go to the SEC or the Big Ten in a second and, and say K-bye to everybody else in that conference. So, to me, like... And Frank brings this up on his Twitter feed, too. Why wouldn't all of you say to yourselves, I'm going to act in my best interest, because that's usually what people do, um, and go, 
hmm, do I want to wait for them to screw us over? Or at least since I know they're going to at some point, should I just shore up now? Like, I mean, especially if you're KSU, like KSU is screwed. Like it, Iowa it, State? It, Iowa State is screwed. Like Baylor, to be honest, is also screwed. Like there's, there's the schools a lot that of- aren't. Like the only schools that are definitively probably not screwed are Texas, Oklahoma, maybe, maybe Oklahoma State, maybe and TCU. maybe maybe TCU because they've been good enough, and maybe Kansas just because like Kansas Kansas is fine. Kansas is Kansas fine because could they're AAU, probably they're, they're AAU, AAU. They have really good basketball. Yeah, they're fine. And like the basketball is so good that like the Big Ten or ACC would probably be like, you know what, it's worth it because like what's another garbage program when we're going to be um, one of the four standing power conferences, right? Like, at that point, adding Kansas football ain't that big a deal. Um, when you're then adding, like, imagine the ACC with Kansas in it for basketball. I know basketball doesn't drive the bus, but, like, that's, like, it, it means more to the ACC Kansas than it does anyone else. Adding Kansas basketball to the ACC would drive the bus. It would drive a, a smaller bus. It would drive, like, ESPN being like, yeah, we'll, we'll take that. Why not? And, you know, it, it doesn't help the football brand. But I don't think it really hurts it, especially when the ACC is about as strong in terms of football brand as it's been in, in a long time right now. Um, really, like, uh, a really quick turnaround on that, too. Um, I know me and you were both uh, kind of believers in the ACC football product, um, even when it didn't look great. But uh, And maybe that was just because we really wanted it to be good because that's where Syracuse is going to end up. But, like, ACC football is in, a, in really good shape. And the ACC Six overall is in pretty good shape. right now. Yeah, and like a lot of them, you know, who knows what Miami looks like after this weekend? Who knows what Virginia Tech ends up being? But it's not like the top twenty-five is so deep where those teams looked all that out of place based no. on what's happened. And to be honest, like these are—it's not just any six teams. It's not like some wacky ass year. Like these are the They're, six teams that are supposed to be there, and and, and that's yeah. that's kind of the, the 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 underlying you know exclamation points of all this is that not only are there six teams there, but it's the six teams that absolutely need to be there in order for the conference to succeed. Yeah, it's like the sits that that you would expect. And, you know, even same Florida State, and I actually think, I kind of think Florida State's going to beat Miami this weekend just because I think Florida State just has a talent advantage and and I think they'll get up for that game. But even if that happens, Miami's not going to fall out of the top 25. Yeah. Like, they're they're not. Um, now, if they, if they slide, then maybe. But, you know, you have a UNC, which looks quite good after beating Florida State on the road. You have, uh, obviously, Miami looks as good as it has in years. Who knows if that stands up with the sted- actual schedule coming around now. Because, you know, beating Georgia Tech doesn't look all that great this year. Va Tech, like, I don't know where they're going to end up this year, but I think the the whole, like, Fuente process is, is really bearing out. They look quite quite good. Uh, being very early on in a, a pretty big offensive overhaul. Probably not as big as Syracuse's, but still pretty big. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the ACC, like, the fact that no one even comes close to mentioning the ACC being in trouble when, like, two years ago, common, uh, like, expansion theory was that if a Power 5 went, it was going to be the ACC. And I always thought the Big 12 was the more vulnerable just based on the makeup of the league and the uh, imbalance in held what that league a, has. It's held together by a TV contract and, and two large brands. I mean, and, and again, this is not new information for anybody listening, probably, but you, you look at the states that that they're in you look at the the cities that those teams are in there is no value to that conference outside of its presence in the state of texas um and and that only applies to the fact that the horns are there if the horns left nobody would care that they had four or five other programs in texas um even if houston showed up 
Um, Texas is the, is the main attraction. Texas A&M being, you know, 1A or 1B, depending on the year. Um, and, and if you don't have either of those, you don't matter. Um, yeah. Baylor and TCU are nice, like, ornaments, and, and they've grown their, uh, their appeal and their brands recently. But they're not, like, you're, you're not going out there if you're the Pac-12 and saying, you know what, we're going to get in the TCU business right now. And that's going to be our big move because that's going to bring us Texas. It, it doesn't like it's just it's a nice program. Um, it's you know a really solid fan base, but it's it's not the driving force in that state. It's Texas and A and M. Even you know you can you you'll you can probably effectively argue that A and M, even if not as big as Texas, is still uh, quite big just because like the SEC doesn't mess around. They they brought them in for a reason. So um, and they've you know it seems to have paid off. So. Yeah, uh, Big 12, not in great shape when they can't get that passed. Um, it just like it just shows that there's just not the requisite interest in that league staying together. Like it's it, it just seems like uh, everything that's happened in the last like two or three years is is going toward the, in this inevitable march towards um, this league either breaking up or uh, losing its punch and becoming like the Big East of, of old. Um, because if Texas and Oklahoma leave, like. That league, it, it, maybe it's better than the AAC, but it, it doesn't look a whole lot different. No, and at that point, those two leagues should probably just merge. Yeah, that'd probably be an interesting, uh, interesting conference. I, ideally, that's really all they could do at that point. You know, the same survival thing that Mountain West and Conference USA almost did um, four years yeah. ago, which was still like one of the more fun, like as far as like wacky shit that almost happened. Like that was actually like codified. It wasn't as like stupid as the Texas wants to be in the ACC rumors. Um, that was actually like, we drew this up, we agreed, uh, we're going to have two conferences compete for a championship game at the end, um, and it's going to be awesome, and I was actually pretty excited about it, but you know, then each conference kind of got picked apart, um, Mountain West, well, I mean, somebody should write a, a book about what that, that Mountain West could have been if nobody left, Utah, T- been fun. Utah, TCU, BYU, and Boise, um, that's one of the four best conferences in the country, probably. At least at the yeah. top. It probably doesn't get the respect, and, and, and the depth is an issue, but like those teams are, I mean, proved to be pretty competitive uh, with anyone most years. Like that's That would have been fun. Agreed. Um, all right. That little uh, foray into realignment conjecture is always, uh, always a good time. Brings people back to the old days. Yep, it's like a good off-season, you know, in mid-season here. Yeah. I'll talk about realignment whenever. I I, am, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy realignment while also being super realistic about how stupid the whole thing is. Like, it's it's just so interesting to me, um, which is why I always end up, like, anytime it comes up, I always end up writing those articles just because I'm fully enthralled by the idea of, like, how this stuff works because it's so crazy and no one really seems to know what they're doing, um, which is always fun. <laughs> Same here as somebody who kind of came up writing about it. Um, But yeah, I think that's all we got. Um, That was Dan. I'm John. Thanks for listening to Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. Uh, Dan, you have any final words for us uh, before we head out? No, uh, if you see me in uh, Winston-Salem, hopefully I'm not hiding under a roof uh, avoiding a hurricane. Agreed, agreed. Safe trip down, bud. And uh, go Orange. Thank you. Go Orange. Thank you.
At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.